0: Good evening. We're uh, enjoying our first New Year's Eve here in uh, Capital Bible Seminary spaces. And while it's a little different, um, I see many of the same faces. I think that's good. We have communion service once a month at uh, the National Capital Bible Church. And normally, we celebrate it again on New Year's Eve. This evening, and the difference between the uh, normal service, is that tonight we're being served by men in uniform. And it's not that we are therefore trying to make uh, the military service spiritual, but instead what we're trying to do is to honor both the communion service, and the military service or the uniform of the the military service. We're trying to honor them both for what they represent. We have in this nation many symbols that represent our freedom. And they could be maybe individuals, they could be speeches, might be maybe a location or an event. We might even say, well, it's the Declaration of Independence that represents our freedom. However, the military uniform is unique from the standpoint that it has generally found its place at various times and locations in our history that truly overwhelmingly establish and preserve the national freedom that we enjoy today. Sometimes those uniforms are knickers, maybe even a tricorner hat. Other times, buckskins and moccasins. Sometimes they would be a western garb, maybe cowboy hats. Also, it would be gabardine and leggings. And for those who are in the aviation community, I suppose we'd say flight suits. Flight suits even represent that as well and today camouflage jackets flak jackets so principally and i think foremost our freedom may generally be associated with our military uniforms furthermore these military uniforms represent the sacrifice of those who have worn them down through history the very nature of military service really requires personal sacrifice and Personal sacrifice comes not only for those who wear the uniform, but those who are associated with the uniform, such as family and friends. As we observe these uniforms this evening, or really at any other time, we should be cognizant that they are a very visible form of our freedom. And if we truly know the sacrifice that goes with the uniforms, we understand that our freedom is not free and so tonight on our the eve of a new year we are really celebrating not just the time but we are celebrating the nation and so i think it is fitting that we have uh, military uniforms in the congregation we understand that those who are dedicated in these uniforms, are dedicated to serve and serving those of the nation. And that's one of the parallels that we have is because we know that our Lord Jesus Christ came to serve. As he said, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. So as we observe the Lord's Supper or the communion service tonight, we have symbols that represent... The commitment and the sacrifice of our Lord for our spiritual freedom. And those symbols are the bread and the cup. The symbols that we have represent the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. First of all, his sinless life as he went through. A human existence. Then we have his, his work on the cross. And so these two parts of the communion service, both his sinless perfection in his human life, and then secondly, his actual spiritual death on the cross that provides our salvation. Therefore this evening the first part of our New Year's Eve service is to absorb is to observe the source of our spiritual freedom through the Lord's table or the communion service. The Lord's table is designed to help us concentrate on the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's designed for us to remember and focus on the biblical truth that is taught through the symbolism of the elements. And I always try to emphasize that the elements that we have, the bread and the cup, are symbols. We really do not worship. We certainly do not worship the actual elements themselves. But it's what they represent. So we do not believe that the elements actually physically turn into the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. But instead, we understand that understand them to represent His work on the cross and His body. The unleavened bread pictures Jesus Christ in His humanity. The fact that the wafer is called unleavened represents the analogy of sinlessness. Jesus Christ was fully God, undiminished deity, But he was also true humanity, united in one person in his first advent. One person with the deity and humanity. And we say that occurred during the incarnation when he was in the flesh. In his human body and life, he was without sin. So he was qualified to go to the cross and there to die as our substitute and take upon himself the judicial punishment for our sins. The cup symbolizes His blood, which, in turn, represents Christ's work on the cross. His spiritual death, the payment for the sins of the entire world, is what truly occurs while Christ is on the cross. Christ experienced spiritual death during the painful experience of paying for those sins. He died spiritually on the cross so that we might have Spiritual life. The bread represents our Lord's qualifications in his persons, person, and the cup represents the sacrifice of Christ while on the cross. And so these are the thoughts that we should have during our communion service. Since his death on the cross paid for the sins of the entire human race, there is nothing we can do as individuals for our own salvation. When Christ said, It is finished on the cross, he meant that everything that needed to be done, everything that could be done, occurred at that moment. All of the sins, whether they were past sins, whether they are present sins, or whether they would be sins yet to be committed, all of them were resolved at that moment. And that's why there's no such thing as losing our salvation but our salvation is eternally, eternally secure once we believe. There's no sin you can commit that could ever cause you to lose your salvation. Why? It is already resolved. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. And the Lord's table is for all who believe. There's no reason to be a member of a church. There are reasons to be a member of a church, but there's not a requirement for... For to be members of the church to enjoy or participate with a communion service. So tonight, as we prepare to take the elements of the communion table, I'd like to give you just a few seconds for spiritual preparation. Spiritual preparation is confession of sins and also certainly orienting our thoughts so that the communion service is effective And it's meaningful for us. So let's take just a few seconds, bowing our heads and closing our eyes, and then we will later be opened in prayer. I would like to ask Randy Bissell if he would please give a prayer of thanksgiving for the bread. Dear Heavenly Father, we take the bread in remembrance of our Lord's perfect human nature and give thanks for your perfect plan and the work of the Holy Spirit made it possible. We give thanks to our Lord for his flawless execution of your plan, the perfect submission that while He was here on this earth, He remained a uniquely qualified person. He could save us all the way to the cross. And it's in His precious name that we pray. Amen. It's our custom to retain the bread until all have been served. move out. detail forward marks mark time March detail Hull center face. seats. In 2 Corinthians 5:21 we're told that he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. And so our Lord Jesus Christ has taken the sin of the entire world upon himself. And so it was Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I'll ask Hal Hal Hagemeyer to give a prayer of thanksgiving for the cup. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what the cup represents. The spiritual death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross as a substitute for the death that each of us deserves. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to remember the doctrines that we've been taught associated with his spiritual death. And we thank you again for the sacrifice that he provided for each of us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's our custom to retain the cup until all have been served. Move out. Detail, forward, march. Mark, time, march. Detail, halt. Center, face. seats in ephesians 1 7 we're told that in him we have redemption through his blood his spiritual death the forgiveness of sins so in the same manner he also took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood this do as often as ye drink it in remembrance of me Heavenly Father, we're thankful that we have a communion table. We're thankful, Father, that this service is designed for us to focus and truly understand who and what Christ was and what He's done for us. We're thankful that our salvation does not depend upon us, but it's totally dependent upon the work of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. And, Father, we are also commanded to look for His return. We are to remember Him, and we are to look for the op- His uh, return at the rapture. And so, Father, help, the, help us to have these things on our minds so that we might, in fact, be better servants for You. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I would like to ask you all to rise for the singing of When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Tonight, as we pause to sort of look forward to the new year, What I'd like to do is talk a little bit about the United States. Now, there's been uh, discussions and debates and even a little bit of arm wrestling, I guess you could say, over whether the United States actually uh, is found in prophecy. And I think we can say, at least most of our positions would be, that it is not. But how does the United States, therefore relate to the Word of God. How do we see our nation in relation to what is happening in the Word of God? Well, I think it comes by way of our, really, our spiritual heritage. God has ordained five institutions, five divine institutions, The first one, human responsibility. Sometimes we call that volition, but we have human responsibility. There's also marriage and the family. We also have the government, which really comes under the the topic of judicial responsibility that God gives us right after the flood in speaking to Noah. And then, of course, we have the divine institution of nations. And so, if we have a divine institution for nations, then how does the United States fall under that divine institution? Well, as there are biblical principles, biblical principles explaining what makes a godly marriage or what makes a godly family, We also have principles explaining what makes a great nation. If a nation follows God's divine directives, it can expect God to promote, to protect, and to preserve it. And I think that our nation certainly has been graciously blessed by God more than almost any other nation in history Because of our nation's, uh, because of what our nation has done in history, and I think that we'll be able to see. Hopefully, you'll be able to see that when we finish tonight. I think that what is true in the United the history of the United States is not true in other nations, or maybe only partially true. So this evening, on the eve of our New Year's. For our nation, we're going to consider four passages. We're going to consider four passages and draw from them four important biblical principles that explain why God has uniquely blessed the United States. All right, tonight we're going to consider four passages and then draw from that four important biblical principles that explain why God has uniquely blessed the United States. From each of these passages, we're going to see a major premise that is taken, again, directly from that passage of Scripture. And then we're going to see a minor premise, and the minor premise comes from our nation's heritage. That major and minor premise is then going to result in each case a what we might call an expectant Conclusion or a promise. And I believe that because the effects of these principles, uh, I, and I believe that the effects of these principles continue. And because they continue, the nation is blessed. God stands by his word. And America possesses many unique features that are absent from other nations. And tonight, I hope to review some of those formative features of the United States and possibly give us hope for America's future. Several Sundays ago, I gave you a brief taste of what these principles were and passages. But tonight, I would like to discuss them again, but maybe with less haste. First of all, the first principle that we have Is a principle that says America is genuinely, has genuinely has a spiritual heritage. So, the title, if I had to give the uh, message tonight a title, I would say that this is probably America's Spiritual Exceptionalism. America's Spiritual Exceptionalism. First of all, let's turn in our Bibles to Exodus 20. New Year's Eve 2010, Americans' spiritual exceptionalism. The message format, as I've just discussed with you, four passages of scripture, four major premises from our nation's nation's heritage, four minor premises resulting in four expectant conclusions for America. And then fourth, the overall premise here is because the effects of the principles taken from these conclusions continue, God's blessing on America will also continue. First of all, we have what I believe to be the genuine piety or godliness of our founding fathers. Let's look at the scriptural major premise here as found in Exodus 20, verse 5 and 6. It says, You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting on the iniquity, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children of the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Verse 6, But showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, as the twelve tribes of Israel were camped at the foot of Mount Sinai. They were about ready to receive what we would call their constitution. Their constitution was the Mosaic Law. And so, on the verge of becoming a nation, they are now being given the uh, promise, really, that we find in Exodus 20, verse 5. That if a nation is begun... In an ungodly way, in what we might call an an, uh, an idolatrous way, then God is going to punish that nation to the third and the fourth generation. However, if a nation is initiated, because we're using I'm using the word initiated here because that's what we have Israel, what's happening in Israel's history. If the nation is initiated. By a group of godly founding fathers, God will bless that nation to what is said here to the thousandth generation. Rather interesting. Now, a parallel passage to this is over in Deuteronomy 7, 9. And it says here in verse 6 before we leave, but showing mercy to thousands. If we go over to Deuteronomy 7, verse 9, we have a parallel passage where the word thousands is used again. Deuteronomy 7, verse 9. Is that when I said Deuteronomy 7, verse 9? Deuteronomy 7, verse 9 says, Therefore, know that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. So here it says a thousand generations. Now, I believe that thousand generations here is probably a figure of speech. It simply means an extremely long period of time or for many generations. But I believe the premise is that God will bless even the remote descendants of a godly people. Now, the minor premise. The minor premise is that America, more than any other nation, was established by a group of godly people for God's glory. While this minor premise is rejected by what we would call revisionist historians. The truth can be demonstrated, I think, very clearly, from early American documents. The Mayflower Compact, framed in sixteen twenty by the first permanent English settlers in North American in the North American wilderness, gives three reasons for their settlement. First of all, having taken, having undertaken for the glory of God. So the Mayflower Compact states that the, uh, the pilgrims were coming to America and the compact was set up because they were undertaking for the glory of God, first of all. Secondly, the advancement of the Christian faith. And thirdly, the honor of king and country. So they loved God, they loved the gospel, and they loved their mother, their mother country. So patriotism was still very strong, even though they were being really uh, sent away from England to a certain extent in order for them to be able to worship as they pleased. But they still were patriotic. Even in Jamestown, founded in 1607, as a strictly economic venture, the first charter of Virginia, of April 10th, 1606, expressed their desires. And it says, we greatly, we greatly commending and graciously accepting of their desires for the furtherance of so noble a work, which may, by the providence of Almighty God, hereafter tend to be... The glory of his divine majesty. And then it says, in propagation of Christian religion to such people as yet live in darkness and miserable ignorance of the true knowledge and worship of God. And so that was also their purpose. So those are the two early documents that we have that tell us about the early intentions of our American founders. Now, not every colonist in those formative years were Christians, but the majority of those coming to the colonies were seeking freedom to worship. A great many were coming because of the Protestant Reformation. And these individuals helped lay the foundation of each one of our colonies. Their Christian piety, or their spirituality, influenced the colonial politics many states, many of their originating documents, constitutions, required the legislatures to accept the Bible as the infallible Word of God. And some, even, that they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I've brought this to our attention before, but Pennsylvania, I'm not picking Pennsylvania for any particular reason, but Pennsylvania was the second state to join the Union on December the 12th, 1787. The first colonial legislative act called the Great Law of Pennsylvania, and this was brought into law by Pennsylvania on December the 7th in 1682. It said that no person who shall confess and acknowledge one almighty God to be the creator, upholder and ruler of the world, shall in any case be molested or prejudiced for his or her conscientious persuasion or practice. Benjamin Franklin signed Pennsylvania's 1776 Constitution, which stated in the frame of its government, chapter 2, section 10, each member of the legislature, before he takes his seat, shall make and subscribe the following declaration. I do believe in one God the creator and governor of the universe, the rewarder of the good and punisher of the wicked. And I do acknowledge the scriptures of the Old and New Testament to be given by divine inspiration. I don't know that we're going to see very many of those documents passed today. George Washington said, It is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God to obey His will and to be grateful for His benefits and humbly to implore His protection and favor. Most of those who came and helped establish this nation were, in fact, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they certainly had a foundation in the Word of God. So the conclusion here, the conclusion is because of our godly national heritage, God has promised to bless America for thousands of generations. Now, again, I don't believe that a thousand generations, if we were to take that literally, well, we're in our about our 16th generation. So we have a long way to go. But, even taken as a figure of speech, which I do think it is, it simply says that God has promised to bless those who have founded the nation or at least have had godly generations preceding them. Our second principle coming from scripture is going to be the gracious provision for the Jews. Genesis 12:3. Genesis 12:3. Most of us know this passage, but Genesis 12:3 says This is with the establishment of the Abrahamic Covenant. And the third part of the Abrahamic Covenant says, And I will bless those who bless you, speaking to Abraham, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Jeremiah 30, verse 20 The last part of Jeremiah 30. And we're in a New Covenant passage here. Jeremiah 30. The last part, verse 20. This is Jeremiah talking about Israel. And it says, verse 20, Their children also shall be as before. Jeremiah 30. Verse twenty, their children, meaning Israel, shall also be shall be as uh, shall also shall their children also shall be as before, and their congregation shall be established before me, and I will punish all who oppose them. And down through history, that has been true, that has been very true. As a matter of fact, just recently, I was talking to someone who um, was studying the history of Great Britain. And Great Britain was a remarkable nation. But towards the end of the 19th century, and then into the, and particularly into the 20th century, there was an underlying sense of anti-Semitism in Great Britain. And they really didn't turn that around until after World War II. But the major premise... That we're going to see here, and the reason I, br- I mentioned Britain is because it was very soon after that, that the sun truly did s- set on the empire, so that their empire uh, uh, was no longer. And many think that it very well may have been their attitude towards the Jews. But our major premise here from Genesis 12.3 is that God will deal with nations in accordance with how they treat the nation of Israel. How they treat the nation of Israel. History is replete with illustrations of nations that persecuted Israel, and the God of Israel in turn has punished them. We can cite as examples, there's probably many, many examples, but certainly the Assyrians. We know the Babylonians. Where are they? Their empires have crumbled, and really their races have vanished. And why did they disappear? Well, there's one major major reason for the demise of these people, and that is because they touched God's people. Israel is God's special treasure. That's how God views His people. Even when Israel is in unbelief, He calls His people the apple of His eye. Let's look at Deuteronomy 32.10. Deuteronomy 32.10. Deuteronomy 32.10 is Moses speaking. Deuteronomy 32.10 says, Speaking of the Lord, He found him, Israel, in a desert land, and in the wasteland a howling wilderness. He encircled him. He instructed him. He kept him as the apple tree. Of his eye so it's, he's, Israel is described as the apple of his eye Zechariah 2: eight says something very similar it says and let me read this and maybe the to save a little time for thus says the Lord of hosts after the glory uh, after the glory has he sent me into, unto the nation which spoiled you for he that touches you touches the apple of his eye. And so, a minor premise taken from the history of our nation. Throughout our history, America has been a friend to the Jew and to the nation of Israel. Unlike other nations, we have never once had a governmentally uh, instigated persecution of the Jews. Nor have we had a policy that opposed them. But that's rare. Most countries have, at one time or another, had anti-Semitic policies. The first refuge in history with full freedom for persecuted Jews was called Rhode Island, where Roger Williams encouraged all persecuted individuals, especially Jews, to settle. With his blessings... The Toro Synagogue, the first synagogue in America, was established by the Jews of Newport, Rhode Island, in 1656. So our nation's history, again, demonstrates that we have never been guilty of persecuting the Jews, but have helped them more than through any, than any other nation in history. In modern history, it was the political pressure exerted by the United States that, brought about the homeland for the Jews in 1948. And it's the United States that really guarantees the continuous support for the state of Israel. And we do that through economic and military aid. When attacked by nations around it, Israel has very often found itself with only one friend, and that is the United States. Former President Jimmy Carter, whatever we might think of him, echoes the sentiments of the United States government towards Israel in his congratulatory comments upon Israel's 30th anniversary as a nation. He said, as the President of the United States, I can say without hesitation that we support Israel, not just for another 30 years, but forever. And other presidents have made similar statements. So our conclusion to our second Uh, major and minor premise is that because of our nation's treatment of the Jews God has promised to bless America God has promised to bless America our third passage and principle here is the great pivot I could use another word I could say the preponderance of Christians that are found in the United States but the word pivot is sort of a technical term the great pivot of christians genesis 8:23 through 26 genesis 8:23 through 26 very interesting passage genesis 18, 23 most of you will recognize this passage as when the lord And two other men, two other angels really, appear to Abraham. And they are just about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And as the two men depart, two angels depart to go down to Sodom, the Lord stands or lingers with Abraham, then still known as Abram. Excuse me, Abraham. And Abraham came near to the Lord and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you indeed sweep it away, and not spare the place for the sake of fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do justly? So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare the whole place on their account. On their account, Sodom would be spared for 50 righteous. Well, we know how this works. We know that Abraham was very good as a businessman. And so he starts at 50... And then he begins to work his way down. And he goes from 50 to 45. From 45 to 40. From 40 to 35. From 35 to 30. And he finally gets all the way down to 10. And remarkably, the Lord just agrees with him as he goes. And Abraham thought, 10. Surely there are 10. And that's where he stops. And the Lord said, yes. If there are ten righteous in Sodom, I will spare that city because of those ten righteous. Well, sadly, couldn't find ten. Now, I don't know how much further uh, Abraham was willing to go. From what we understand, he could have said five. The Lord would have agreed to that. But there were not five there. And as a matter of fact, in 2nd 2nd uh, Peter. 2nd Peter. Let's go over to 2nd 2 Peter 2:7. 2, 2nd 2 Peter 2:7 2, This is Peter really giving us some inside information about Genesis because he starts in verse 4 talking about God not sparing the angels. When we get down to verse 6, he says, "...turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked." Now, we're not told of any other righteous. It's very likely at this point that there may have only been one righteous person in Sodom. And we're not told that um, Abraham went all the way down to one. He didn't. He stopped at ten. But what we do know is that there is a principle here. And the principle is that God will spare a nation for the righteous people. So our premise, our major premise is this. That God is reluctant to destroy a wicked place when many or some righteous people are living there. And that comes out of Genesis 18. The minor premise. America as a nation has the world's preponderance of Christians. Now, I didn't count these myself. But I'm told that the United States has somewhere upwards of almost 80% of those who claim to be Christians. Now, you might say, what kind of a definition are we using? Well, let's save ourselves some time here and maybe just stipulate to the fact that the United States probably has the majority of believers in the world. Now we're probably not going to be able to count some nations. But there are very few, and Barnum is one of the uh, uh, pollers that takes this information, but there are very few people who uh, who would argue with that fact. So by some estimates, upwards of eighty percent of the world's believers reside in the United States. On top of that, when church attendance in Europe is taken, they say that church attendance right now in Europe is somewhere around two to three percent of the population. Whereas in the United States, somewhere in the vicinity of forty-five percent of the United of, of uh, people in the United States say that they attend church regularly. On top of that America uh, alone has a fundamentalist movement that still influences our nation. And I think we can see that from the last election. So the conclusion, or what I'm calling here an expectant uh, promise, is that because of the number of believers in America, God, the righteous judge, has promised to protect America. Fourth, our fourth point here is the grand purpose of America. And the grant for the grand purpose of America, we're going to Acts seventeen. Acts seventeen verse twenty six. Acts seventeen verse twenty six. Here we see Paul speaking to the Athenians on Mars Hill. And he makes an important point. He says that God has determined the course of each nation, including the time a nation begins and ends, as well as the geographical boundaries where it's located. Acts 17.26 says, "...and He has made from one blood every nation of men." In other words, we all are descendants from Adam. Now, we have to go through uh, a rather defining point there of the flood so we can say that we're really all descendants of Noah. And this verse really uh, argues against races. We're all of one blood, all of one race. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwelling. And I think when we would have here the pre-appointed times really is the establishment of events. And the events here can be the times of its beginning and its end. And then, of course, it says their boundaries. And so while men established countries and through conquests and through treaties, fixed borders, God in his sovereign superintendence determines the existence and the extension of nations. God sets the chronological and geographical boundaries. And God has a purpose for every person, every family, every congregation, and indeed every one of the nations that he establishes. There is a purpose for them. He works all things after the counsel of his own will to accomplish his purpose. And we know from Daniel 4.35 that it's God that raises up kings and he's God and it's God that removes kings. So thus we can con- can conclude, sorry I didn't give you that major premise, that God has a special purpose for each nation. What is our minor premise? The United States as a nation has been a beacon of light to the world through missionary activity and a home for the oppressed. So while the United States is not specifically mentioned in Scripture, therefore we can't go to a specific passage that speaks of the United States or the determined purpose of God for our nation, I think that we can go right back to our founding documents and tell that the purpose of those who came to this nation was for the spread of the gospel. The first colleges and universities that were established in the United States was for the training of ministers, and many of them for the training of missionaries so that they would go to the Indians, the American Indians. And the United States today still has, with with, they're not, it's not even close in comparison to the number of missionaries that are sent from this nation to other nations. So, I think that America, however imperfect we are today, has been true to its destiny. We have been a lighthouse of the gospel. Of the world's approximately 50,000 evangelical missionaries, 45,000 come from the United States. We are the land of refugees and immigrants. I remember the boat people from Vietnam and Cambodia. Yes, they were taken into other nations, but the majority of them came to the United States. Cubans are, even though we try to use a rule of law to bring them into the United States, they still enter the United States as they flee Cuba. So the rejection and the re- the rejected and the refugees of other nations find refuge in the United States. God has blessed America because God has blessed America because we are fulfilling His destiny for our country. And as long as we are faithful to that destiny, I believe that God will be faithful to the United States. So. Our last conclusion here, as long as America is faithful to its destiny as a base for missionary outreach and a refuge for the loss, God will be faithful to America. Now, this doesn't mean that we as believers in the United States can, as we might say, rest on our laurels. We are citizens of this great nation, and we must not shirk our responsibilities as citizens of the nation, or of our citizenship of heaven. We must continue to be faithful stewards of our God and our nation. Just as with Israel, disobedience will bring discipline. So I think that we do have hope. and I think we should have confidence in our nation. And we should have expectancy because, first of all, we have a spiritual heritage. A spiritual heritage that is unknown, I believe, in the rest of the world. Secondly, our national attitude towards the Jews. Again, a nation that has always been a friend of the Jews and a friend of Israel. Thirdly, because of the number of believers that we find in this nation. Now, that number is probably coming down and declining. Which means that we as believers need to renew our dedication to our faith. And then fourth, our faithfulness to our divine destiny, the missionary outreach. But we must continue to realize that if we are unfaithful, that we can be disciplined. And so I think it's incumbent upon us as we look at the new year to try to be diligent in our Christian faith to not only grow personally, spiritually, but also to serve the Lord in these areas so that we ensure that our blessing for our nation is not endangered. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we are thankful that You are the righteous judge of all the earth. We're thankful, Father, that You will do justly. We're also thankful for these promises in Scripture. And we're thankful for the spiritual heritage that we have in this nation. Help us, Father, not to be led astray by those who would create a revisionist history for the United States, but help us to be faithful to our founders, to push forward that spiritual heritage. And help us, Father, also to achieve the destiny that, we, that you have designed for us. Help us to continue to support missionaries. Help us to continue to serve in our churches here at home. Help us to have an impact, Father, not only on this nation, but hopefully on the world. And we pray, Father, that we will see the continued blessing of the United States in the new year, 2011. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.